Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, the nick is bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. This is Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam. Thank you for joining me here today. So, we are on to the second and final episode of the terrible Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Where I last left off, we had talked about phase one of the experiment. So now I'm going to jump into phase two, which took place from 1932 to 1965. As you had heard prior, the first phase or that phase was supposed to be the only phase of this experiment lasting for about eight months. And as I told you, it went on to last 40 years. Dr. Vrundler convinced Tuskegee Institute and its Andrew Memorial Hospital, the Tuskegee Veterans Administration Hospital, the Macon County Health Department, and the Alabama Board of Health to support the extended experiment. Nurse Rivers was back on board. The two most important immediate changes to the study were the addition of a control group of people without syphilis and to plan to follow at least the older participants until they died at which point autopsies would be performed so that direct clinical observation of the effects of the disease could be determined. Dr. John Heller was appointed by Vondeler as the health officer to select and examine the control group. The control group of 200 men similar in age and socioeconomic status to the 400 syphilitics was selected from the men who had tested negative the previous fall. Arranging for the autopsies was more complicated and involved the elaborate social code of segregated Alabama. Vondeler and Heller sought the cooperation of all local and state officials who were involved in any way with issuing death certificates. They all wanted the cooperation of local physicians who might be called on to treat study participants who were critically ill. Vondeler and Heller met with the medical societies of Macon and the neighboring counties. The doctors in these societies were all white. In confidence, Vondeler told them the purposes of the study and gave them lists of the participants. Bringing the local white doctors into the project not only assured their cooperation with respect to reporting critical illness and deaths for the purposes of arranging autopsies, but it also put the study participants on lists, which kept them from inadvertently receiving treatments for syphilis. Up until then, families would take care of their dying loved ones and arranged for their funeral. The doctors needed to be able to autopsy these people. They came up with a scheme. In 1935, a burial insurance scheme was developed with the cooperation of the Millbank Memorial Fund, a New York foundation which supported medical research. Millbank provided a grant to allow payment of a fee, initially $50, for each autopsy. The fee was to be split between the doctor doing the autopsy and the family of the deceased. Nurse Rivers would offer burial insurance payment in exchange for the participants' family's cooperation with the autopsies. How kind of them. It was the only insurance most of them would ever have and provided a strong reason 
for the participant to stay in the program and for families to alert the project nurse when death occurred. The doctors executed the scheme by informing the participants at the 1935 annual meetings that they wanted to evaluate and continue the bad blood treatment. Continued participation in the program would result in burial insurance. The autopsies were conducted, and the samples of fluids and organs removed from the deceased participants were sent to the National Institute of Health. Nurse Rivers obtained the consent of the family members for autopsies. The study fell into a sort of routine. Nurse Rivers kept in regular contact with the participants, both the people with syphilis and the control subjects, through visits and letters. Once a year, the men were given a blood test and free medicine was distributed. In 1932, 38, 48, and 1952, young public health service doctors came from Washington for re-surveys. The men were brought to Andrew Memorial Hospital for complete examinations, though the dreaded golden needle spinal taps were never again administered. When a participant died, Nurse Rivers would secure permission for the autopsy, the procedure would be carried out, and the samples sent to Washington. Maintaining the long-term cooperations of the participants was important, and over the years, various inducements were used. Some participants were promised free hot lunches and free transportation to be examined. The methods used to induce participation in the study are best described in Nurse Rivers' 1953 article mentioned, Because of the lower educational status of a majority of the patients, such as farmers and day laborers, it was impossible to appeal to them from a purely scientific approach. Therefore, various methods were used to maintain and stimulate their interest, free medicine, except penicillin, burial assistance or insurance, free hot meals on the day of the examination by public health service physicians periodically, transportation to and from the hospital, and an opportunity to stop in town on the return trip to shop or visit friends. In 1958, the participants were given other incentive in the form of an elaborately printed 25-year certificate of participation signed by the Surgeon General and accompanied by $25, $1 for each year of the study. At the annual blood test, the men with syphilis and control subjects alike were given various shots, a green-colored iron tonic and pink pain pills, which were actually just aspirin. Virtually none of those interviewed in later years knew the purpose of the shots, but assumed they were for bad blood. With the invention of penicillin, there was now a cure for syphilis. End of study, right? Nope. There was a major effort to get all persons in Macon County with syphilis treated, but those who participated in the Tuskegee study were not permitted to receive such treatment. Herman Shaw, one of the participants, recalls that he was included in a group of men who were taken to Birmingham for treatment. During the night before they were to be treated, a lady who was in charge of the facility where they were staying was pacing the floor. Herman asked her, Ma'am, what's the matter? And she said, There is somebody who is here that's not supposed to be here. And he said, Who is it and what's his name? And she said, Herman Shaw. And he said, I'm Herman Shaw. And she said, You're not supposed to be here. Get up and put your clothes on. So as you can see, Herman Shaw was rewarded for his honesty by being treated terribly. And by following her instructions, they put him on a bus and sent him home and he was never treated. Withholding treatment, especially after the development of penicillin, was a major factor in the ethical questions that began to be raised over the study in the mid-60s. Astonishingly, up to that point, 
there is little in the public record to indicate that anyone from the Public Health Service, the Millbank Memorial Fund, or the Tuskegee Institute raised significant moral or ethical concerns about the Tuskegee syphilis study. The final phase, 1965 to 1972. In 1965, a new generation of doctors was involved. Nurse Rivers had gone into semi-retirement. Four to 500 of the original 600 participants had died. More significantly, the climate of race relations had changed dramatically over the three decades since the beginning of the study. In 1932, segregation was rigidly enforced and Jim Crow was the law of the land. But by the end of 1965, Alabama had experienced a substantial change in race relations. The point is that there were substantial differences in how people felt about race in Macon County in 1965 and what they believed in 1932. African-American men and women and children were no longer restricted from where they could sit and eat, drink water or vote. But racism was still very widespread, often blatant, but it was unconstitutional for whatever that was worth because African-American people were still treated horribly. The Tuskegee syphilis study continued on and was still well generally unknown to the public. The persons who were attending the program in the mid-60s began to be very concerned about what would happen if and when the study was revealed. When the study was discussed in a 1965 meeting with public health doctors, the racism of the study was only briefly discussed. They believed that they could sweep it under the rug by saying that, quote, the people were at that point that the therapy would no longer help them, end of quote. Not surprisingly, the conductors of the study still ignored the racial implications. The study seemed to be completely unaffected by the guidelines that arose from the post-World War II Nuremberg trials. There was still continuing discussion on human experimentation within the overall scientific and medical communities. A critic of the study was Dr. Erwin Schatz, and he said, quote, Utterly astounded by the fact that physicians allow patients with potentially fatal disease to remain untreated when effective therapy is available. End of quote. In 1965, Dr. Olansky insisted that they should, quote, follow them until death do us part. End of quote. A sick, abusive union it was indeed. Furthermore, they justified this criminal study by stating, quote, we're at the point that therapy would no longer help them. They are getting better medical care than they would under any other circumstances. End of quote. How kind. The consensus was the study should definitely be continued. Not for much longer, but nowhere soon enough to stop the suffering of the living. It was not until the summer of 1972 that the surviving participants learned through the news media that they were part of the Tuskegee study. From the time the study started in 1932 until this disclosure, the public in Macon County generally had absolutely no knowledge about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. It was later revealed that the local doctors in Macon County and the surrounding counties had been given lists of men who were not to be provided penicillin for syphilis. The individuals had specific knowledge about the study were very few, and the public generally had no such knowledge. For a study that was so important, why was it so secretive? I believe that they knew what they were doing was wrong. 
The data from the study was sporadically reported in medical periodical literature. The general public knew nothing about it until the Associated Press ran a wildly distributed news report in July 1972. Public Health Service employee Peter Buxton was working in San Francisco in the mid-1960s as a venereal disease interviewer and investigator. He was one of the few that questioned the moral and ethical failures of this study and brought it forward. Buxton became very, very concerned and had some questions in his mind about these men not being treated and the whole manner in which the study was being conducted. Buxton later wrote in a prepared statement about his role, quote, I was shocked by statements such as an important phase of this study has been the performance of autopsies. Mortality and morbidity are consistently higher among the untreated syphilitics. And other passages which indicated the participants did not realize what was happening to them. I pointed out that the Tuskegee study could be compared to the German medical experiments at Dachau, and that public disclosure of such a scandal would jeopardize congressional funding for other beneficial public health service projects. My superiors were shocked at what I had done, but after warning me that I could possibly be fired, they agreed to forward my report to the CDC. The initial reaction seemed to be a shocked silence. End of quote. Fearing that his report would not attract attention to the Public Health Service, on November 9, 1966, Buxton wrote to Dr. William J. Brown, the chief of the venereal division of the Public Health Service. And this is what he wrote. It is my understanding that the study of the untreated syphilis in the African-American male has been supervised by your department. I am also given to understand that over 30 years ago, a group of African-American men were given either insufficient or placebo treatment. Furthermore, I am told that these men are not volunteers, but were and are told that they were receiving proper treatment. I'm impelled to ask, one, was the study initiated to obtain physical examinations and autopsy reports on the syphilitic damage that these men were allowed to endure? How many of these men have been fully treated? Have any of these men been told the nature of the study? Is the study still underway? In other words, are untreated syphilitics still being followed for autopsy? Your attention in this above matter would be greatly appreciated. End of quote. Unsurprisingly, Dr. Brown did not reply. Later that year, Buxton quit the study and entered law school. He wasn't done with the study, though. In November 1968, now as a private citizen, Buxton wrote Dr. Brown again, quote, When we discussed the matter in Atlanta, I told you that I had grave moral doubts as to the propriety of this study. While I can see the justification and propriety of this study at its inception, and even up to the time of widespread use of penicillin, I could not condone the continuation of the study up to the present day. End of quote. The committee in charge of the study advised that after the committee is selected and planning underway, that they write Mr. Buxton to the effect that there are differences of opinion among the medical profession as to whether or not the study members should be treated. This did lead to the February 1969 ad hoc committee meeting in Atlanta. Some changes were made, but the study continued and the public was still unaware of it. In July 1972, Buxton told a San Francisco Associated Press reporter about the study. The Associated Press managers assigned the story to Gene Heller, an investigative reporter based in Washington, D.C. 
Heller then researched the story and then wrote the story. The story was a major news event in Alabama in 1972 and naturally invited comparisons with all the other racially discriminatory practices which the state of Alabama has unfortunately but deservedly been identified with over the years. The Tuskegee study also invited comparisons with other notorious cases of human medical experimentation. As a result of the initial investigation into the case, the following conclusions were reached. One, the United States government violated the constitutional rights of the participants in the manner in which the study was conducted. Two, the government knew the participants had syphilis and failed to treatment, even after the penicillin became available. Three, the public health service failed to fully disclose to the participants that they had syphilis and that they were participating in a study and that the treatment was available for syphilis. Four, the public health service led the participants to believe that they were being properly treated for whatever disease that they had, when in fact they were not meaningfully treated at all. Five, the public health service failed to obtain the participants' written consents to be a part of the study. Six, the study was racially motivated and discriminated against African-American males and that no whites were selected in the participation of the study. Only those who were poor, uneducated, rural, and African-American were recruited. Seven, there were no rules and regulations governing the study. In late 1972 and early 1973, the study itself was finally getting the public spotlight that it had managed to avoid for 40 years. Gene Heller's first news report was published on July 25, 1972. The very next day, government spokesmen, including some from the PHS itself, began condemning the study. The various responses generally took the form of admitting that the study had been wrong, but that it had begun in an era where both medical and social conditions were very different. Outside agencies and institutions which had been involved tried to shift the responsibility solely onto the public health system, making county private physicians who agreed in 1969 that the surviving syphilitics would not be treated now said they did not know that the treatment was being withheld. The Tuskegee Veterans Administration Hospital denied any direct involvement, and the federal government, meanwhile, quickly condemned the study and launched an investigation. The study was operating under the CDC in Atlanta, under the U.S. Department of Health. Assistant Secretary of HEW, Dr. Merlin Duvall, became the person who was to investigate the case. He said, quote, he was horrified, end of quote. He put an ad hoc committee together to investigate. On October 25, 1972, they issued a full termination of the study. In early 1973, the committee looked to private, proper medical care for the survivors. The aftermath. The Tuskegee syphilis study ended in 1972, and the lawsuit resulting from it was settled in 1975. They went on to examine the impact of standards and safeguards for medical and scientific research, its racial dimensions and role in human rights movement, the importance of the case to the participants, little consideration was given to the participants. So that what are the standards resulting from the study? In order for the government or anyone else to conduct a study, there must be a proper protocol. There must be informed consent. The persons must know they are involved in a study and proper safeguards must be put in place so that their individuals' rights are protected. The government has reevaluated the use of human beings and experiments 
and has set minimum standards in order to conduct human experimentations. The experiments were extremely racially motivated. It was just as racist as segregation in Alabama farm programs and housing, public accommodations, and in the political process. President Clinton addressed the world 25 years later, stating, To the survivors, to the wives and family members, the children and the grandchildren, I say what you know. No power on earth can give you back the lives lost, the pain suffered, the years of internal torment and anguish. What was done cannot be undone. But we can end the silence. We can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye and finally say on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful. And I am sorry. In conclusion, this was one of the worst examples of cruel acts of human experimentation. And not just that, it was coupled with racism. In fact, this always seems to be the case with the targets of abuse being non-whites, people with mental illness, people with learning disabilities and physical disabilities, and the people of lower income, just to name a few. This still goes on today, and people still don't like to talk about it, but it does. I invite you all to please share this episode or talk about this so that we can try to stop this from continuing to happen. So that is the end of the Tuskegee Medical Experiment. Before I go, I want to give some thank yous to some new iTunes reviews. I want to say thank you to Tessa1109, Cheese Omelette, Linda in Kansas, JW Hit 99, Linny Pop, Teleaddict. Thank you all very much. There's just one thing I want to address here. I've had some reviews and a few emails that stated that some of my early episodes were cheesy. And I don't usually address this kind of stuff, but I just want to clear it up a bit. I am cheesy. This is just the way I am. Early episodes, I was just being me and getting comfortable with this whole podcast thing. That laugh that people have questioned whether it was genuine or not, the <laughs> If you know me, I do that all the time. So yeah, I'm a cheese ball. I'm a little weird. I'm a little out there. That's just who I am. So those of you that are bothered by it, I'm sorry. It's, it's just me. And I hope that you can cut through that and, and listen to the content of, of what I'm talking about. And if you can't, that kind of sucks, but there it is. And I want to thank everybody who listens to this podcast. It, you guys all blow me away. I, I just feel so lucky to be able to do this and have more than my family listening to it. So thank you all very much. If you don't mind popping on iTunes and leaving me a, re a review, that would be fantastic. Also, thank you to all of you who support me on Patreon. It helps to pay the fees. I put out a, an extra episode, mini episode a month, and I'm looking to do more with that. And 
And I want to start doing giveaways and, and things like that again. So maybe you can pop over and check out Patreon and see if that's something for you. So thank you again. And remember, take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Love one another. Love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah, subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.